right, let's dig in. Um, or we'll read through the first portion, as I mentioned, 6 through 13. And then uh, we'll take what we have for the remainder of our time. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. All right, moving right back to verse 6. As we start this portion, we see that it's repeated, as I mentioned in the startup, um, you know, time and again, that life comes through Jesus Christ. Physical life comes through God who created us. We're creatures. But this life he's referring to throughout this letter is the born-again life. The new life in Christ, born of the Spirit. And so you see here in verse 6, this presentation, this comparison, it's, it's a, a type and a, a bit of symbolism. And it, you know, it conveys that Jesus is God and he is man. And there's been much scholarly discussion about the type or the symbolism mentioned here. I'm going to present to you a few uh, summaries, if you would, of what those who have studied and dug in deep and have seen and, and their opinions. But they're just educated opinions. Okay? So do you realize, I hope there's certain parts of Scripture that we understand. We're not going to definitively reconcile certain portions. It doesn't mean that we're to be foolish and ignorant and lazy. We're to, we're to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But there's also portions that you just have to be humble enough to say, I think it's this, but it could be a little bit of this, and it might be some of that. And this is a portion that we have to approach that way. So we have some to say when we're looking in verse 6, that the water speaks of Jesus. And they would reference, for example, the washing of the water of the word. And so they, the water represents Jesus, and the blood speaks of the cross. And they're looking at this symbolism and what is being said. Others say the water speaks of the Holy Spirit, and the blood speaks of the humanity of Jesus. See, so there's the presence of the Holy Spirit, and there's the humanity. So God is present in, in Christ, and, 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 but yet he's fully man. See, the humanity is very important because Jesus came as a man and died for the sins of the world. He, he, he was what we call the atoning sacrificer. He made, made things at one because he was the propitiation, the word. That he was the one that resolved this issue between God and man called sin. And he resolved it by coming as a man and then dying for the sins of the world. 
one thing that was happening at this time, this, this was written, the initial audience, and it actually continues to this day. It's a different title sometimes, but it's the same thing. It's called Gnosticism, or higher knowledge. And so the Gnosis, meaning knowledge, higher knowledge, and the Gnostic theory, was basically that the Messiah come upon Jesus as a man, but then departed before the cross. Because the Gnostic theory is basically your body does bad, but you don't. Because you have this higher knowledge, and yes, you do things, but it's not. The, the flesh was the problem. And so why do I say that this repeats? Because when you try to take the humanity away from Jesus, you're, you're saying that he didn't have to die, come as a man and die for my sins. Because here's the thing, isn't it hard to receive? Let's be honest. Every one of us, I have not yet a person met a person who struggles who doesn't struggle with this reality. It's hard to receive. What I mean is, say someone says, here, let me help you with that. And what does a two-year-old say? No, I can do it. I can do it. And what's a 10-year-old say? No, I can do it. What's a 45-year-old male say? I'll do it myself. You know, it's just hard to certain, right? I mean, yeah, sure, we'll receive something that was like, oh, yeah, I'll take that. But I'm talking about just things where it's just like, because, you know, think about it. We're receiving from God forgiveness of our sins. Shameful things, horrible things, terrible things that we don't want to talk about with anybody. And yet he says, I'm, I paid the price. I suffered on the cross. I endured the hostility and the brutality that you may be saved. And, and we have to receive that. And, and even early on, they were like, no, no, we'd, let's, let's have a, uh, an idea. Here's, what they, here's basically what happened. They established their assumptions without information. What's their assumption? Well, I think the flesh is bad, and so Jesus wasn't really entirely flesh. He was just a body that was inhabited by the Messiah spirit, and then Messiah spirit while the body went through the pain and suffering. Because they're trying to take away the price that he paid, because it's hard to receive. And in reality, we have to realize he paid that price. He, he, he did it. And so that was one theory. You know, how you could say something some, that water speaks of the Holy Spirit, the blood speaks of humanity. Some believe, looking in there in verse 6, that this is a reference to water and blood that flowed from Jesus' side on, on the cross. Because we're uniquely and interestingly told that when the soldier pierced his side, that water and blood came forth. Now, if you get into the medical side and study it, you'll see in essence a swollen heart. Jesus died of a broken heart. And this water and blood come forth. So they're thinking, they're saying, well, this is kind of what the emphasis is because it brings together all these truths about him being a man, dying for our sins, and the weight of the world carried upon, carried by him. Some take this symbolism we're looking at in verse 6 and suggest that the water speaks of Jesus' baptism and the blood was a symbol of his atoning death. So we kind of, you see, and it is symbolism. You see, I mean, well, it's a type of reference, if you would. Of all these, they all have merit, each one of those thoughts. They have something to add to our thoughts. So this is a part or a portion of truth that I don't feel I have to say, nope, it has to be this one. I let other people do that. And they become very definitive, and I don't have an issue with that, if that's what they're at. 
But I don't believe I have to. I believe I could consider this and ponder that and go, okay, interesting. I, I kind of lean towards this. Because here's, if you've noticed something as you grow, you get smarter. It's, it's not, not required, but it's a result if you're really humble. So you actually do grow. You mature. In, in most any area, you apply physical frame and intellect, whether it's a sport, whether it's academics, whatever. My point is, there's some things that I embrace, and I could say probably for you as well, in your Christian journey, that when I was young, like, oh, this is absolute. I know, no, this is it. And I would be like passionate. I'd be reading the Bible, and I'd go to some men's group, or I'd go to, to meet up with somebody. Oh, did you read in this part, verses 7, 9? Man, this means this and this and this. I'm so excited. And they're like, not exactly. I'm like, you're an idiot. Obviously, I know what I'm talking about. I've been reading and studying the Bible for almost three days now. You know what I mean? There's just some, we get kind of, and then as we hopefully are humble and not, not losing the zeal, but being formed by the truth, we find ourselves down the road going, <laughs> man, that was, that was so silly what I took hold of back there. But I'm okay. You see what I'm saying? There should be maturing. We should be growing in what we're knowing. We should know him more. We'll actually finish our time looking into that a little more. Bottom line is this. If you look at the verse, it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. Not the power of the essence, but the person of God, and the Holy Spirit. One God expressed in three personages. The spirit bears witness. And witness speaks of um, to, to testify, to, to tell of, to report. And so what we see here is the Holy Spirit is the final and absolute authority, for he is truth. And he'll bring forth from the word of God, the truth of God, to change the children of God. And we're affected by his presence. And so it's okay to discuss doctrine and to even disagree on some non-essential things. I think it's actually healthy to have a gathering of people where you're not in sync and so lockstep that you don't really know if you can think independently with any healthy you know, exercise, right? I think there's got to be an element, but it's got, it requires humility because he is the final authority. He gets to make the call. I don't have to. Now let's move on to verse 7. Verse 7 is interesting because this verse and part of verse 8 are not in many of the early manuscripts. Most of the early manuscripts do not have these verses. And so I'm not going to delve into, time doesn't allow, but I'm not going to delve into the to the, what we would call the historicity of Scripture, the history and how it's filed, nor the authenticity. So we know how that it's authentic, and it's a study of its own. It's actually very stimulating intellectually. It's very, you know, I think it's very refreshing spiritually as well. I'm not going to get into that. It just suffices to say that there are very practical and intellectual ways to reason through this apparent problem. Because it's, people try to sort out, well, how did it get interjected if it wasn't in the original manuscripts? Well, it was in some, but it wasn't in these. Like, okay, but let's just, you know, it was here, and, and so you have to kind of work it through. And I don't believe it's a problem, but rather it's an invitation to learn. See, some things are just more difficult to take hold of. And it takes a little bit of processing, and some are not interested in it, and that's not a problem. I, I'm telling you right now, I'm sharing this portion, and you're like, so what? Some of you are like, so what? Some are like, what? I never heard that before. Some of you are going to go home and eat lunch. 
watch a football game and take a nap. And some of you can't because you're like, what is he talking about? Well, that verse wasn't in the original. You're going to dig into it. That's awesome. Go for it. Either the nap or the digging in, whichever. You know, it's okay. It's like you got to kind of sort it out because I only mention it so you're aware of, of the reality of it. I don't want you or maybe you're sharing with somebody and say, hey, I, our pastor's going through First John. We're going through chapter 5. It was just a good study. Hey, did he tell you that that verse 7 wasn't in the manuscript? No, he didn't tell me. Oh, well, he's holding out on you. He's not telling you the truth. He only gives you the stuff he wants you to know. No, I, I, I presented some of you a problem. And you're going to have to deal with it. But that's the reality of life. And you're going to dig in, and you're going to, okay, so many, and here's an important way to see this, many truth-seeking scholars have accurately reconciled this issue in their minds, and we should do likewise. Whatever your disposition, whatever you got to work through, some of you, even with a husband and wife, one might be, oh, yeah, I get it. I'd make, okay, it was in this and this. And the other was like, no, I can't accept that. There's got to be more to it. So you just dig in, or you just chill. And kind of move along. What I want to mention is verse 6. The Holy Spirit is truth. So God still is the one that makes the call. And the content of verse 7 I find more important than the multiplicity or the, the number of places on manuscripts. I believe both are relevant. But the content's what's important. And that is, it's not a unique truth. In other words, verse 7 doesn't present something to you and I that's only in verse 7 of 1 John 5 in the Bible. It's nowhere else in the Bible. If that presented a unique truth, that would kind of be a whole different realm in processing why it's there and why it's not there. Agreed? But that would just change the way you'd kind of work through it. But you find this declaration throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. It reveals the triunity of God. Remember, uh, to witness is to report or to testify. And we have here in verse 7, the Father, the Word, which we know in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, continuing on to John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's easy now to see that we have the Father, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the triunity of God. The Father speaks of the Son. The Son speaks of the Father. Jesus said of the Father, I and the Father are one. The Son speaks of the Spirit. He said to his disciples, there will come another one. After I depart, the parakletos, this, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, he said, will, will, who is around you but will be within you. So the Son speaks of the Spirit, and the Spirit brings you to the Son. Because Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he will bring to your remembrance the things that I've said, and he will glorify me. So you see what's happening in this? What's, this is They testify, they tell of the triunity. And these three are one there in verse 7. Verse 8, picking up on the earth. These three bear witness, the spirit, the water, and the blood. These three are one. On earth, in this realm, at this time, the Holy Spirit, the water, which you can see could be representative of of the word, of, of baptism, or the humanity of Jesus, and the blood, the cross, 
the victory of Jesus. Empowered by the Spirit to the glory of the Father, we see the work of the Spirit. All of those tell of what God has said, even now that they agree as one. Moving on to verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, which we understand that. You know in our system, so to speak, it's not just unique to like our, our governmental system, our, our form of civil order. It's, it's unique only to humanity, I guess I would say. And that is witness account, eyewitness account carries heavy weight. It, it is a, it's a very important element, Agreed? Men speak of, they make statements, and we consider those statements when we're sorting out the truth. Obvious example is testifying in court. You're bringing forth, making known what you know to be true. You don't have to know everything. You just have to know relevant facts towards the case. So men make witnesses, but God is greater than men. So the point being, men, see, here's the, here's the problem with men. When I speak of humanity, not speaking of a specific gender, well, I don't want me that be confusing. I, I'm speaking of men or women because there's not a whole myriad of genders. It's just two. So anyway, now that I've opened that, I'm going to move through it. <laughs> but the, the bottom line is men are liars. People are liars. And I, I don't, you guys can exclude yourself because you came to church today. But, you know, everyone else is a liar. Here's the thing. What, what, when do we lie? Let's face it. Let's be truthful. When the situation is extreme enough. When there's a high enough risk, a deep enough hurt, and great enough confusion, we withhold certain information to make our presentation more favorable. That's just what happens with people. Am I the only one who noticed that? Well-meaning, good people, we, in the right situations, we'll just, ah. but guess what? God's witness is greater. So what we say is important. It's a reflection of integrity, character, Christ-likeness. But the bottom line is, God's greater than men. Therefore, what he reports or brings forth is the most important. God is greater. This is, this is what he's brought forth. This is the witness of God, which he testified of his son. There's a time that is recorded in Scripture where it's really unique. I, well, not unique. I just think it's a beautiful summary of this. In that Jesus is there with John the Baptist And we're told that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism. And at that time, the Father declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The triunity of God there at the very moment of his baptism, the empowering of the Spirit and the acknowledgement of the Father. And this is what he's saying. This is, these, are all, these are true. This is what God says to you and I. You know? So now it carries us in, of course, to, to verse 10. And in verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has witness in himself. He does not believe God has made God a liar. And let's just think about that for a little bit. What has God said? I'll just give you kind of a, a key topic or key points in relation to what we're looking at. God has said that everyone needs salvation. All have sinned and departed from God's design. All have sinned and fallen short. All have rejected God. And that's just a statement of humanity. It began in the Garden of Eden, and it's been repeated by every person since then. All have sinned and fallen short. So everyone needs salvation. That's what God has said. He also then said, No man comes to the Father except by Jesus Christ. 
So believing in Jesus is the only way by which you can be saved. So not only has he presented the absolute truth, you need salvation, but he brought clarity, although it seems to be so limited. But the only means by which you can be saved is through, is through Jesus. Now, if we say, well, I, I don't think so, if we embrace some contemporary press and some common push nowadays, well, you know, Christianity is so exclusive. You know, people, if they mean well, if they live well, if they do well, they're going to end up well. No, that's not true. That's not true. That's a, that's a cultural dishonesty. That's a global dishonesty. It's just not being truthful. But understand this, because many, I, I'm thinking of my own life when I didn't want to be bothered by church stuff, when I didn't want to think about dying, although I was doing things that were deadly, which is ironic. I didn't want to think about it. I just wanted to go do dumb things. And so here's like, I'm, I, don't want, I just don't want to deal with it. When, when we say to God, not now, what we don't really process is we're saying, not me. Think about that. Because many say, well, I'll deal with that when I get old and gray hair. You know, I'm just going to live a little bit. I want to hang out. I want to have fun. You know, I don't want to deal with that too gloomy stuff. That's so crazy because you're saying, by saying not now, I'll deal with it later. I'm saying not me. Here's what I mean. We're not simply saying I'm not ready. We're saying, I don't think I really need God. Let me check my options. Let me live my life and see how it works out. The problem is it's under the preconceived or the conclusion, the presupposition, old people die, young people don't. Don't we live that way a little bit? Isn't there an assumed order? You know, babies are born to parents and grandparents are around and great-grandparents pass away and that's our accepted order. That's, that's the preferred process. But we're lying because we know that's not guaranteed. We know we don't know the day or the hour by which we will depart. And so we want to be, re- be aware, like, man, I don't want to be saying, I, I, I don't know, later, when in reality, there may not be later. Because here's the other side to this that we don't see. When we say, I don't need it now, I'm not my deal, whatever, you're calling God a liar. Because he says you need it, you need him. By He's the only means by which you can be born again. You can, you can spend eternity with him, and, and the no goodness is with him. And you're saying, I don't need it. You're saying, you're a liar. As long as I do good and act good and I'm more moral and ethical than those type people, I know God, I know I'll get to go in. You're saying that Jesus was an idiot because he went to the cross and you can actually get in the back door. You can come in by some other means as long as you do good and feel good about yourself and just help people now and then and just, no. See, that's what's so important to see. We don't want to declare God a liar who's brought such opportunity forgiveness for forgiveness, for love. It's said very clear, we see there in verse 11, this is the testimony that God has given us. Eternal life, and this is the life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, he does not have the Son of God, does not have life. It's relational. We see that. You and I, as we work through and think through this, like if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're born again. But if you reject it and say, well, as long as I went to church a lot, I was, I was raised with this denomination, I attended, my grandparents took me to church as a kid, I did this and did this and did that and did those, that has no bearing, absolutely zero 
bearing or influence on salvation. It, it does nothing. Because salvation is a relationship, not an inheritance. It's something that we're, we're, we, we choose. We receive this gift he extends through the person Jesus Christ. And we agree, I can't get to heaven on my own. Only God can forgive me. Jesus is God. I'm reading that. So I need his forgiveness to have this life born of the Spirit. It's the only means by which I can be saved. So, I, 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 God, I need that. I, I, I want that. I look to you for that. Because Why? Because the pastor was passionate or persuasive? No. Because the word of God tells you right here, without the son, you do not have life. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have not received his gift of forgiveness, you are not born again. You're not going to heaven. And that's not me just trying to mess up your Sunday. It's just the fact of what it says right here. It's so important. Moving on from there. We see in verse 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John mentions two reasons why he's writing this letter. The letter is to believers, because that's literally what he said right here, you who believe. What are the two reasons? Christian, follower of Jesus Christ, believer, born again, born of the Spirit, You need to know that you have eternal life. You have it because he's with you. You have it because of his promises. Why is that so important? Because you will face heartache in this world. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome this world. Right here today, we have, or even listening, we have people, you, you know, you're, you're hurting, you feel guilty, you feel shamed, you know what, you've done things you shouldn't have done since you were born again. And you will naturally start wondering, man, I don't know if I should go to church. I don't think I should. I, man, if people knew about me, they wouldn't even talk to me. And, and it, it, we get kind of pushed. You need to know. This is what it's telling you. Look at what it says. That you may know that you have eternal life. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we stumble. Yes, there's consequences to those actions. But it doesn't cost us our salvation because if we can somehow mess up and lose it, we never had it in the first place. You just never had it. You only talked yourself into believing that you had it. Because you can't, no one can snatch his child out of the father's hand. No one can do that. And so you need to know, I want to encourage you, know why you have eternal life. Whether it was today, whether it was last year, decades ago, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You put your confidence in him. Yeah, you may have started going to church, and yes, you may have been doing things differently. You will, because you're his. But you're not doing those things to get eternal life. It's because you have eternal life. Because you have a relationship with Jesus, who is the Christ. And notice he wants you to know it, and then also look what he says that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I can look at my own life, and I know many of you, with um, tears and heartache, you can look back on your Christian journey, and you actually know some who have not stayed the course. There are some in your life that you, you, went, you connected with, you prayed with, or just a, a deep and a beautiful relationship. But for whatever reason, whether it's deception or distraction or whatever, they've wandered off course. And they no longer are continuing in a faithful way to follow Jesus Christ. And and that's not meant to compare and think we're better. 
It's meant to be aware, lest we do the same. He is writing this letter so that you know that you can continue to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. To believe what you hear when you read something is like, okay, that's awesome. But to realize he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in my life. Well, that's not just for someone in position or somehow influence. Or, it's for every believer that God is faithful. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't depart from us. And so we're drawn to that kind of love. We want to live because, you know, he's, we're being told to continue in his name. Don't depart. Don't wander off. Be aware and stay close. Are you going to stumble along the way? Pretty sure. You know, I don't stumble as much on flatland. But when the going gets tough, it, I, I, I trip a bit. When I'm having to scramble rocks and work through these certain things, for some reason I decide I don't want to go there. That's a parallel for the spiritual journey. And there's times you stumble, but continue. He's, he's telling you, you have salvation because of what Jesus has done, who he is, and he wants you to know that truth so that you may continue with the Son of God. Continue with him. Don't turn back. Let's move on to verse 14 through 21 and read through this portion. Now, in this, now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask, and God will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is, no, there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, that we may know him who is true, and, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Verse 14 and 15 speaks of a closeness. This confidence we have in him, is, it, it comes from the relationship. Um, as we have this closeness, as we learn what it means in a personal way, Public gatherings like this are awesome. I mean, the group gatherings are, I love when we're able to come together. But you, you leave from here, and even you're touched while you're here about a personal relationship between you and God. And, and as that relationship is, it becomes closer, we start understanding, you know, this relationship with Jesus. It, it opens our eyes to the will of God. It's like a, a relationship. When we have closeness, we have conversation. Agreed? When you get to know someone. And, and this closeness or this um, conversation of closeness, it, it considers the will of the other person. Because as you get to know someone more, you're thinking about what they're interested in and who they are as a person. And, and that's true. We know uh, relationally, like between like man and woman as they're dating or even married. We know what's even vocational, recreational, uh, academic, different things. As you learn from each other and you develop an understanding of trust and integrity and reliability and all these different things, you just you open up more. And you actually start considering that person, especially as you, you're stirred with an awareness of who they are. So when we pray in, 
as it said here, you know, we have this confidence. We ask anything, it, it'll be according to, according to his will. It doesn't mean I get to say, hey, can I have this? And can I have that? And can I have that? No, when we understand, first of all, what he's done for us, the, 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 the life that he laid down and the pain that he endured, and we realize that that resulted in our forgiveness, then we won't embrace things that he literally went through. In other words, he went through that, made that payment because of what we practiced. And when you consider, man, I, I, man I, I'm just, I don't I'm interested in practicing that. You're, you're longing for his will, so you're really requesting things that are in line with his will because you're learning, you're getting to know him. I want to realize something, that prayer is not, um, it's not the act of, of persuading a reluctant God, okay? Prayer is not the act of persuading, because sometimes there's this perception, well, if we pray, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, you know, I, I think there should be emotion. I think there should be expression. There should be a stirring of our whole faculties when we're praying. But it's not, a, it's not somehow to coerce God. See, prayer, is, it's, it's not this persuading a reluctant God. Prayer is the manner that we learn the will and the way of God. So it's not so much to get him to do something. It's rather for us to be aware of what he does and to be more in tune with, man, this is what God's doing. So you, you find yourself as you're praying, praying for things that you didn't consciously think through. In other words, you may pray for a particular person to be you know, touched or comforted or whatever, and, and you're thinking about things different because guess what? The Holy Spirit's leading you in prayer and teaching you to pray. And then you see the hand of God, which was going to happen, but you see this hand of God work in such a way you can't do anything but praise him and go, wow, that had to be of God. You're, you're, you're getting closer. Because remember, um, conversation is relationship-based. Therefore, prayer is not a duty. It's an opportunity. You know, when I say conversation, that's what prayer is. Prayer is our conversation with God. We can go all King James, which is okay at times, where you just pray with the these and the thous because it's a different framework and a different vocabulary. Some people really do have a prayer language in that sense because it's not diluted or common to their conversations. It's a different way of engagement, which is good. I don't think it's better. It's just if that's what you do, that's awesome. I'm more street language. So it's like that's how I pray. But the point is, as we, it's relationship-based, so I get to pray. I have an opportunity to talk to God. I have an opportunity to hear from God because we need to remember this. He hears our prayers. He answers our prayers, and he teaches us to pray. Did you catch that? He hears our prayers. I think it's glad because I'm not going to pray anymore if he doesn't. Can you, would you be the same? Would you be that efficiency, efficient-minded? You would. Why bounce it? Why if, it, if the prayers don't penetrate sheetrock, I'm not, you know, why, why do it? So well, I, I know he hears, and we're also told he answers. So that's important. To hear and, and ignore, that's what other people do. But rather, he hears and he answers. And we're told as his disciples were trying to sort all this out, he teaches us to pray. Isn't that cool? The disciples come to Jesus and said to Jesus, John the Baptist has taught his boys. He, he showed them how to pray. Could you teach us to pray? Now think about that request. They had observed the Pharisees praying. They were aware of the religious thrust in some form of conversation. They'd seen the hypocrisy in the types of prayers that were just drawing attention to the individual. And they say, we, there's something different. Teach us to pray. And do you remember what Jesus said? It's relationship. 
He said that with the content of the model prayer. Okay, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. My kingdom come, your will be done. Do you see? It's the relationship with the Father that teaches us to pray. It's a relationship with God. It's a relationship based. And so we have this opportunity and we know he teaches us to pray. Let's go to verse 16. Well, there's nothing there. We'll move on to 17. Just kidding. Huh. A brother sinning, which does not lead to death, but there's also a sin that leads to death. Okay. Awkward. What is that? What is he talking about? Well, you can be stubborn, unteachable, and God may call you home. Now, some of us will go, really? That's a promotion. I don't mind leaving. I get a little correction when I get to the throne of grace, and then I'm home. I don't have to deal with this world anymore. Don't don't glorify rebellion. Because what's being taught here is it's possible to commit sin that leads to death. And I know that doesn't fit with American Christianity. It doesn't work with the Sunday comfort hunger and all the different pleasure things that are natural of our flesh and, and some of the things that are really detuned and taken down lower in the American Christianity. But the Bible is telling you and I something very serious that we need to take with sober-mindedness and awareness of his love. Are there any examples of this being brought forth? Yeah, actually. In the early church... The church at Corinth, a coast town that was really like a naval port. It was really vile. I mean, it was really a messed up city, very carnal. And in the first letter to the Corinthians, there's like 11 chapters addressing carnality. There was division in the church. I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. I follow, you know, uh, uh, you know this guy or that guy is sect- sectarian. Kinda, we call it a clique now. Everybody had their own little group. There's a lot of that. There's sexual issues. There was all stuff going on. And there was something else that was happening. The congregation, the gathering of people, the Christians, were, were disrespectful. They were unfaithful. And they showed disregard for the price Jesus paid. How do we know that? Because we're told in chapter 11 that they were getting drunk at communion. They were carrying on with such a flippant attitude, uh, just a recklessness almost in regards to the price he'd paid. And then they didn't care about each other. And we're told in verse 30, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. You know what sleep means, right? They've passed away. They've died. Now, track with me. Why did some of them, why were they weak and sick and had they died? Because they show disregard for the truth of God. Because they just become so casual in their Christian engagement that they were, they were just carrying on. And it says that some of them were dead because of that. That's sobering, isn't it? Was there anybody else? Maybe that was an exclusive reference. No, you know of another one. The only people that were really slain in the spirit, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. What happened there? Well, what happened with Ananias and Sapphira, the church is growing. It's, it's just young, of course. And there's this amazing work God's doing and, and growing up, bringing up what we know as the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And as God's bringing this about, you know, they just they took a communal attitude, which is really good. They're like, how can we help each other? 
And, they, and then some of them just say, hey, listen, I'll sell my place. I'll sell mine. I'll do this. I'll do that. And they just were, were like, man, let's do this. And so they're excited. I believe it's a stirring, a work of the Spirit. But there was hypocrisy because Ananias sold his place. And then he conspired, we're told. He had it his own. It was his. He could do whatever. But wanting to fit in, wanting to appear all in, he fraudulently presented that he got it for this much. And Peter says to him, so uh, Ananias, how much did you sell the place for? This much? Yeah, yeah, that much. And Peter says, why have you conspired to lie to, the, to God, to lie to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias doesn't have an answer. He has an action. Eek. He literally keels over dead on the spot. And they take, pack him out. Three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, because they've conspired on this. And she comes in and they say, okay, so did you sell the property for such and such? Yeah, that's what it was. It's like the men who just packed your husband out who's dead will now carry you out. And she falls over dead. Why? See, here's the thing. They lied to God. They were okay just in the group, in the, you know, the social side of just lying to God. Well, wait a minute. They didn't lie to God. They lied to Peter. Peter asked a question. They answered Peter. Really? <laughs> they lied to God. They were, they were, it was a facade. It was a, it was a pretension. It was a form of hypocrisy. And they were lying to God. So it, it's not about the act. In other words, we don't want to say, well, okay, I've got to make sure I'm honest financially and participate responsibly. Well, that's true. It's, that's not that. It's, it's not how you take communion or how you follow a doctrine. It's not the act. It's the intent of the heart because the heart, the intent of the heart is the means by which the act grows forth. See, for some, it's unwillingness to learn, which is what we've seen in Corinth. Some, it's deception or hypocrisy. Some, it's wanting to fit in fraudulently or keeping back more for yourself or presenting that you give. See, here's the thing. God knows the heart. And in some cases, he calls a believer home as a measure of discipline and correction. Now, don't be thinking, oh, my neighbor died. He went to church for a while, but then he quit. I bet that's why he died. Don't work. No, don't. You missed the whole point. Don't try to apply it to someone else. You just look in the mirror and make sure your heart is not deviating. Because we actually can, can okay things we shouldn't be okay with. And it can be a real problem. So, you know, in case you're, let me give you an example from my own life of maybe this principle, I hope I can convey it. I'm going to share a story I haven't shared in detail before. But about 50 years ago, give or take a few, I had this thing called a paper route. And so I delivered papers early in the morning. And my brother, we, we had our own route. And it was fairly close to home. And, and as we did that, we developed relationship, if you would, with other friends that we went to school with that also had paper routes. Well, sometimes we'd connect, other times we just wanted to get home and get back to bed. But, you know, there's just, you know, like 12, 13, 14, I don't know the exact age. But life's a little boring at that point, especially when you've already got up. You're up at 5 in the morning or a long time before daylight, and you're doing your paper route. And there's just, there's just, it's just boring. I mean, you got this opportunity to do things, and, and nobody knows what you're doing. And it just, you know, vandalism is just such a thrill. And there's such opportunity at that time of day. And, and it's like, hmm, but we knew we shouldn't do certain things. Well, guess what? 
a couple of our buddies ride their bikes over to our route. And we're chatting and talking. And one, you know, you have one guy, you have a half a brain. Two guys, you're down to a quarter brain. Three guys, you're down to an eighth of a brain. And when you're feeding off each other, the next thing you know, stupid prevails. And it's voluntary. Well, this one guy, there was Butch and Dwayne, myself and my brother John. And there was about three or four others. All this little bad news mob right outside the parking lot. Butch and Dwayne, I think it was Butch, brought the eggs. He'd got stolen eggs out of a chicken shack or, you know, hut and had been stashing them. So they're like weeks, maybe months old. They stink. And the cool, you know, there's an amazing thing about egg. It's a phenomenal projectile. I mean, you can chuck it. It's got good mass, good weight. It's got small size, less restriction through the air. And it makes a, a, a it, it signs its name on impact. You know what I mean? Like, boom, like, eh, yeah. Well, one thing leads to another. We're not sure what we're going to do with them, but we all know what we want to do with them. But no, we don't want to do it. But out of nowhere, well, out of somewhere, out of the paper bag, one of the guys took and chucked an egg. And that's all it took. We were like spontaneous. It was like, I can't even tell you what it was like. We just started throwing eggs. It was like, we were just like laughing and all, we were just like going over to chucking eggs. Well, it was my paper route, my brother's route. And we threw eggs at the pastor's house because it wasn't like it's the pastor or anything. I didn't know he was the pastor. It's just convenient. It's his fault. He lived there. If he didn't live there, I wouldn't have hit that house. You know, I mean, it was just, you know. But the problem was he was up early, which he shouldn't have been because he had no business being up early. He doesn't have to be to church, so whatever. Anyway, here's the point. He calls the number on the subscription, which is for the carrier who doesn't have a cell phone 50 years ago. He has a dad phone. And dad gets a call early in the morning, earlier than dad likes to get up. And this guy is saying, rawr, 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 rawr. my dad was able to decipher, I will kill them. <laughs> and so he gets in a 1977 Chevy Silverado, long bed, no, no crew cab business back in those days. And we're, we've fled the site because that's what you do. And as we're running away, we got to get rid of evidence because we don't get caught with eggs. So we just plaster everything in sight as we're running away, just chucking eggs. And then we get down to Hartman, and we work our way up to Fairview, and we're going down Fairview on our way home. And here comes the truck from hell. Seriously, my dad just comes driving by, and he's, he sees us, and, and we just, you just stop because he should not be up now. And everything goes into, like, matrix slow motion. Oh, Mr. Anderson, oh no. And you're just kind of processing all this. And dad pulls up and he invites us to ride back home with him, but he used different words. He he wasn't uh, that pleasant. I didn't know dad knew. I knew he knew those adjectives, but he never directed them at me and my brother. We no longer were able to be with our buddies and do what we were doing. We misrepresented the father. We were causing problems. And dad took us home. Do you see the picture? You just got to be really careful. I'm like, this should just kind of, it shouldn't create fear unless you're throwing eggs. But if you're not, it's like, oh, wow, this this is real. He loves us enough to, to deal with this. Verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. All unrighteousness. Well, I don't throw eggs. So I don't know what my unrighteousness would be. Well, consider 
James 4.17. We're told in James 4.17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to that man it's sin. You know to do good. I don't want to do that. I don't want to help in that way. I don't want, that's not my thing. I won't forgive them. I won't do that. No. Let somebody else do it. He's saying that's sin. And, and is, is it not possible in a marriage relationship, among siblings, among coworkers, among people that have hurt you and that hard things, is it possible that we can be so stubborn to God that we're basically throwing eggs? Because I think it's, it's not fear. It's just this is what it says. If you know to do good and you do not do it, then that's sin. And all unrighteousness, it, it, it's sin. Moving on, verse 18. This is one of those statements you have to keep in the context of the letter. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Well, we also know that back in chapter 1, it says that when you sin. So here's the thing. You've got to keep it in the overall picture. We've got to realize his, his, when you're born again, you're his child, you do not enjoy sinning. You do not enjoy, you don't you, you practice sin, is what we've seen previously in chapter 3, I believe it was. There's just, there, you're, you're different. Before I used to, in my, it didn't bother me to do things I shouldn't do. It was more of a challenge. It was kind of an adrenaline rush to not get caught. But then when I'm born again, it's like there's a deeper conviction. There's something that interrupts that type of rebellion. And I don't want to do it. I don't want to keep sinning. I do not joyfully practice sinning. And not that you don't repeat sin sometimes, but if you can repeat something, you're looking at something, you're saying something, you're doing something you know you shouldn't do, and it doesn't bother you, you're probably not born again. If you do those things and it messes you up, kind of just disturbs you, it, it creates, oh man, uh, that's okay. The Holy Spirit's saying, duh, don't do that. It's going to hurt you. We won't continue in it. For he has been born of God, keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. It's not that the wicked one won't influence you. You're still under the influence of sin and of the enemy. You're just not attached to it. It's basically conveying to you and me that we're his. And although we're going to face struggles and there will be various temptation, he cannot take you out of the Father's hands. He cannot remove you. He can't take you away from what you've been given. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. See, this is not our home as a Christian. The world is bent and moved by the forces of evil until God steps in in a day to come, very soon, I believe, and he says, that's it. Time's up. It is finished. And it'll be what we refer to as the the removing of his children, the rapture of the church. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be caught up to be with him. And then he will direct his attention on a Christ-rejecting, rebellious world. You don't want to be left behind. You don't want to be here. He's going to, there's come a time when he's going to say, this is it. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. I will just say it this way. Get to know the one who saved you. Guard your heart against repetition and religion and certain things that look good to people. Don't worry about it. But make sure you're not compelled just to please people because there is a thing that happens, and I've seen it too, too frequently, sadly. Sometimes people, we inadvertently become more concerned about church than we're concerned about Jesus. We're more concerned about what people might say than what he's already said. 
And we want to be very careful. That's just a natural tilt of the old nature to, to try to please people. But realize, you know, this, we want to get to know the one who saves you. As a young Christian, sorting out my background and my wife's background, and they're very contrary to Scripture, and, and to be able to say, you know, I just want to get to know Jesus. That, that was my deduction, my conclusion. I don't know if this is right or that's right, but everybody talks about Jesus being right. I'm going to get to know Jesus. That just seems simple. Instead of studying the Old Testament and the New Testament and this and all the Like, you know what? I'm just really visual guy. I'm going to stick with the red letter section. I'm just going to get to know Jesus. Literally, I, I, I know what, it wasn't my wisdom or just way of thinking. I believe it was God's protection on me to be able to dig in and get to know the one who saved you. It's so important. Know what you should know. When I was a child, I did childish things. And as I grow, I learn things. Know what you should know. It's not what your spouse knows. It's not what your pastor knows. It's not, it's not what your, your, a person that's a good influence in your life knows. Those could be beneficial. Know what you need to know. Some of us know that we need to know the word of God better. Not, out of, not as a religious requirement, because it's an opportunity to get to know the God who made us, the one who forgave us. So we ha- I, I want to know what I need to know. Some are really solid in many doctrines, but there's another doctrine you may want to dig into more. Some are aware maybe of the Old Testament, and not, or maybe the New Testament, not so much the Old Testament. Here's the thing. Jesus quoted the Old Testament. I would think that would make it relevant, right? He's quoting it. Well, why would he quote it? Because he's taken these truths that reveal the character and the integrity, the faithfulness, and, and the beauty of God as embedded in the Old Testament. And he's taken those truths and he's bringing them forward to, to, to what we call the New Testament. And now with the depth that he, we see here, we see how it all is actually intertwined and complementary and creates a greater strength. That an awareness of how they both go together. Well, there's some of us who want to know the Old Testament more, but you got to get to know the one you know. And each person, you see what I'm saying? I don't want to ever measure against other people. Like, oh, I've been a Christian five years. I should be up with that person. Well, that might help motivate you, but that's not the main intent of your heart, hopefully. I just want to know Jesus more. I just want to be closer to him. And so lastly, it closes very interestingly. Can we agree? Little children, a term of affection. An endearing term, he's using this to say, hey guys, hey kids, come on. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourself from idols. Amen. Like, oh, keep yourself from idols. That sounds like a good idea. I mean, I didn't build a little Buddha and put it on my you know, mantle at home. But what are, what's an idol? Because most of us are like, I don't have that physical stuff. Well, actually, keep yourself from idols. An idol is anything that takes the place of God, whether it's a distraction, whether it's an attraction, whatever it means. In the end result, at the end of the day or the end of the month, you spent more with that than with him. That's become an idol. Let me just say one thing. Screen time. Do we understand screen time? It's idolatrous. I think it's beneficial. I think there's times that we can learn. I love the season that we live in. I'm so thankful for technology. We got to spend time. This is the first time in 40 years that Kim and I spent time at home on Thanksgiving without our children. But you know the beauty of it? We got to engage with them through FaceTime. 
We actually had to cover. I love tech. I love that. But I don't want it to control me. I don't want it to be the distraction. And it takes a tremendous discipline and an inner honesty to admit how much time you waste on a screen. I don't care whether it's a phone, maybe you're old school. Like, I don't have one of them cellular things. I don't need that. Like, yeah, but you can't seem to get your face off of TV. So what's the difference? It's still, it's, you know what I'm saying? I believe it's one of the most common things right now. Because it comes in the form of video games. It comes in the form of perceived information. I don't need to go any further. <laughs> you get it. We want him, it's like, man, I don't want to be distracted. I want to keep myself from these powerless idols of this age. When I say powerless, I mean they have power to distract, but they don't have power to rescue. They're just going to leave you there. And then you have guilt and regret and shame and a lot of worthless information rolling through your cranium, and you can't forget, where, you can't remember where you put your keys. Don't overload everything. Let's just close with Second Peter chapter 3 as the worship team comes up. Keep yourselves from idols. It said there an amen in verse 21. Amen means so be it. It doesn't mean goodbye. It's not the means by which we close our service, although it is a phrase we share. But in, we'll look in Second um, Peter chapter 3. You know, as if you've been here for very long, we like to close with a portion of Scripture. I'll pray that through, so to speak, um, as we as we end our time in study of the Word. And then we'll go right into a, a song of worship together. So if you'll stand with me, we will close in prayer. We'll read this portion of verse 17 and 18 of Second Peter 3, and then I will lead us in prayer. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. God, may you lead us, Lord. We declare, I can speak for myself, and I'm confident for many today. We need you, Lord. We, we, we know that we can easily be distracted. Help us to be awake and aware we don't want to fall from steadfastness. We don't want to just wander away and somehow take what's been stirred within us and allow it to, to just simmer. And then we would falter or wander away. Lord, we need your help in doing that, that we would stay close to you, that you would develop a greater steadfastness, that we would not be drawn away with the error of the wicked. But God, by your grace, by your presence, that we would actually grow in the grace and knowledge of you, Jesus, our Lord and God, that we would understand your ways, that we would know them in a deeper way, that we would know you as you are, Lord, and that you would form us and shape us. Our conversation being close to you, we would understand what your will is, your desire. Oh, God, may this be accomplished to your glory, both now and forever. And everyone said, amen. All right, let's worship by way of music together.